freshman year in college, and there were a couple other guys on the floor that were super excited. And I was trying to figure out what's going on. And they said, hey, we need a fourth person. Are you in? I'm like, well, tell me what's going on. And I found out that two of the guys on the floor really kind of like these two other girls from another college. And they said, they've got two friends. And so we're trying to have four of us go out with four of them and just have a good night. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. All right. And so I said that now before I keep going, I just need to find out because I'm interested who in here has ever been on a blind date. So raise your hand if you have ever done the blind date thing. I see a few. Okay, very good. So I'm not alone. You can talk with those people, find out. You get the excellent experience, the terrible experience, or something in the middle, all right? Mine was not so good. I remember going and we met up with the girls and we went out to eat somewhere. And then we went to um, a production, a play over at the other college and it was not very good. And then I remember afterwards, we went to someone's house. I don't even know whose house it is. I think somehow these girls had a connection with whoever was living there. And so a lot of them were hanging out in this one area and I'm just like sitting in a chair. I'm like, this is not fun for me. Like, and I just remember not having much interaction. The really, the, the best part of the whole night was we got to ride in a couple of really cool cars. And so I enjoyed that aspect. But it was one of those things that I'm like, I am not doing that again. And so I'm glad I didn't really have a lot of expectations going into that night. But if I were just to ask, you know, in this room, you know, what kind of date type stories do we have? I bet you there are some that people would go, man, this was phenomenal. And others that would be, yeah, not so much. And I just think about this idea of how we want to have a good first impression, you know, on that first date. And this week I was kind of looking around and I noticed that Jimmy Fallon on his Tonight Show has put something out there before just asking people, hey, I want to know about your worst first dates. And so people could like tweet in and use the hashtag worst first dates. And so I just began reading some of those and some of them literally made me laugh out loud. And so I was reading about one girl who wrote that she was at dinner with this boy um, and had turned her phone off, put it away. But after dinner, she picked up her phone and saw that her mom mom had called her 15 different times during the dinner. And so she calls going, hey, mom, what's going on? Is there an emergency? Like, what's, what's happening? And she said, hey, while you're on this date with this guy, I Googled his name, and he's your cousin. And <laughs> that was the end of that date. Someone else posted about how she was getting ready for the date. She met the guy outside at the car, but before she could get in the car, he pulled out a lint roller and did all along the backside of her shirt and pants before she could sit inside his car. Not super impressed for her. Uh, there was a girl that said they were sitting at a, you know, a dinner table and the guy said, hey, I need to go use the restroom. So he got up to go use the restroom. And while that was going on, she pulled out her phone because she wanted to contact her roommate. Her roommate was going through some struggles with her ex-boyfriend. And so she simply texted, hey, how are you doing? I love you. But instead of sending that text to her roommate, it was to the boy in the bathroom. <laughs> how am I doing? Well, let me tell you. There was another girl, as far as hashtag worst first dates, that wrote about she had a dentist appointment earlier in the morning and the anesthesia was supposed to, you know, wear off completely um, in a couple hours and it did not. And so she decided instead of like canceling the date for some weird reason, I'm going to go. And she said the entire dinner I was drooling, you know, the entire time. She said, luckily he must have had a sense of humor because we're married now. So it ended up being okay. <laughs> And the one that really made me laugh was a girl said that she was set up uh, on a blind date by her friends. And so she met the guy. But when she met him, she realized that 
this is my landlord. And what really made things interesting was she was a month behind on her payments. And so, yeah, no second date there. I was just laughing because, you know, we do want to have that good first impression, you know, and not just on dates, but anything new. So like whether it's a new relationship, a new friendship, whether we move into a neighborhood or someone moves in next to us, you know, whether we're starting a new job or we're, we're on a new team, we really do want to have a good first impression. And so with that, I was kind of just thinking about what we're reading in the story this week. Because Jesus came on the scene last week, like we've been reading the entire Old Testament, seeing all these different things that have been pointing to Jesus coming, and he was here. But we briefly looked at his, you know, childhood. There's not a whole lot written. And this week, we get to look at his ministry, like the beginning of his ministry. Specifically, we're going to look at about 13 to 15 months worth, his first year plus a little bit, because that's what the story chapter covers. But because there are a lot of events that happen in this year, we're not going to look at each event specifically as far as very much in depth, because each one could be a sermon on their own. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of step back and take a bird's eye view and just go, looking at Jesus from this time period, what are some first impressions that we can take away from this? And there are some other things that maybe as you're reading, you can pull away from, you know, looking at Jesus. But here's four things that I want to just point out as I see about Jesus in this chapter. And so the first thing is this, that Jesus has a heart of obedience. He has a heart of obedience. And so when you open up the chapter of the story, we see John the Baptist and he's preaching, but he's also at the river and he's baptizing people. And Jesus comes up to him and says, I need to be baptized. And John's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And Jesus says, no, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And there's a lot of details we could get into as far as the baptism. You know, this is his inauguration. This is kind of like, hey, he's starting his ministry. Um, He's definitely becoming an example for us of something we need to do. But he didn't need to on the aspect of he'd never sinned. So it wasn't for repentance. And there's a lot of details you could get into. But simply by reading this text, I could tell you that God was pleased by this decision that Jesus was baptized and God was pleased because even in the little intro video, the verse, it said that when Jesus came up out of the water, the spirit of God came upon him like a dove. And then the voice of the father speaks and he says, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. And so even not jumping any deeper into this text, I see that God was pleased because Jesus had this heart of obedience And so we see from this text that he is going to be the Messiah. He is the Messiah. But now the question is, what kind of Messiah is he going to be? And the very next thing that we read is that he is led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, and he is going to be tempted for 40 days. And three of them are recorded for us where Satan says, look at these rocks. You could turn them into bread. You know, up on the temple, jump off. God will save you. This really high point, look at all these nations. I will allow you to be the kingdom of this universe, this world, if you choose to bow down to me. Let me take just a moment, because if you read this text in Matthew and Luke, you'll see that the second and third temptations are flip-flopped. There are some people that will try to say, look, the Bible's a contradiction because of things like that. You need to understand that it's not a contradiction at all. The author has a purpose for why he put the third one as the third one. That was the climax for some reason, and they had reasons for it. And I want you to know that because the Bible can be trusted. There's a lot of people that will try to say there's all sorts of contradictions, but when you ask them, a lot of them don't know. 
They're like, I don't know, I just heard this. I want you to know that God's word can be trusted. So in this instance, Jesus has just been tempted these three different times. And essentially what Satan is doing is going, hey, you want an easier way to be a Messiah? Why don't you try one of these things? They're all different routes so you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to do the will of my father. And in fact, you see that he is led by the spirit and you see that he uses scripture to combat every time that Satan tries to tempt him with something. Which makes me even just take a step back and look at my own life and go, why are there times that I try to either confront evil or do something without actually listening to the spirit or looking at God's word? Like, why do we do that sometimes going, oh, I got this. When it took Jesus standing up to Satan using the word and his spirit, I think we need to make sure that we're plugged into those two things. But looking at Jesus here, he's tempted, but he stands up to what God wants him to do, which then leads to one more event that's not written in our chapter of the story, but it is within this timeline. And we read that Jesus goes to the temple and he clears it out, like all these people who are using it in the way that God never intended. And so he turns over tables and says, this is not the purpose of my father's house. And as I just look at these three events, I see that Jesus has a heart of obedience, that I want to do things the way that my Father wants me to do them, whether it's easy or whether it's difficult. And so, since you and I are supposed to, you know, imitate Christ, we are supposed to be like Him. We're not supposed to be Him, but we're supposed to imitate Him. I think that it could be very well said that we need to have a heart of obedience. And so let me just ask, how's your heart? Like, are you one that chooses to do things the way that God wants you to? Like, let me focus on baptism just for a second. I, could, I know there are a lot of people in this room and watching online that I have chosen to give my life to Christ and I have been baptized. But then there's other people that, like, I know I kind of need to do this, but, like, I'm afraid. Like, there's a lot of people out there. Some of them look kind of scary, you know? And so, like, I don't know that I want to do this. Or sometimes there's the logic side of things. It's like, okay, God can save me. Why is he having me, like, go underneath water? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. And I love what Rick Allspaugh says is, you know what? If God said the way to be saved is to jump on this pogo stick, like, 10 times, and we realize we need to be saved, we're getting a pogo stick out, and we're going to jump on this thing 10 times because we need to be saved. And sometimes we let our own selfishness or things that we think we know better than God get in the way of being obedient to him. Or I know some of you guys read scripture and go, I, I see that baptism is important, but I don't see that it's part of the saving process, which I could say I see like believing and repenting and confessing and baptism all in the saving process. But I'm also not going to argue with you if you wanted to say that baptism is not part of the, the saving process. But I would tell you, if you look at scripture it does tell you it's something we ought to do. Like that is an act of obedience. And so even if you are in the spot where I know that I'm saved, but I haven't chosen to do that, I would encourage you to look at scripture and go, God, why am I choosing not to do this? Is it because I'm doing things my way or am I going to listen and be obedient to the way of the Father? But I don't wanna just stay on baptism. I mean, Jesus was tempted in the desert. So let me ask you this, in those moments when you are being tempted, how's your heart? Are you choosing to go, okay, I'm going to stand up to this and do things the way that my father wants, even though it's not easy, or are you choosing to give in? How's your heart? And I would even tell you, if you look at this text, like Jesus has this really amazing moment of baptism, hearing the father speak, and then he goes off and kind of has this low, this difficult time while he's being tempted. And I think about how many times in life we have some amazing moment, 
And it almost seems like the very next thing is this extreme low. Could I encourage you that even in those moments to have a heart of obedience because God will get you through that. And I know some of you sitting there right now, like you would go, I am in a period of lowness with whatever reason it is. My encouragement to you is continue to trust him and allow you to lead him, allow him to lead you through that. So as I look, one of the first impressions that I see of Jesus is he has this heart of obedience. Here's the second impression that I come away with is that he has a desire to influence. He has a desire to influence. And so what we do, we see John the Baptist and he has a couple disciples this one day and Jesus comes across and these two disciples begin to follow Jesus. One of them we know is Andrew and the other one we can deduct is John because when John writes in his text and he doesn't write the name of an apostle, it's usually him. And so more than likely, Andrew and John are following now after Jesus and then we read that they both go and get their brothers. All right, Andrew goes and gets Peter, and then based off verse 41 in chapter 1, we can deduct that John goes to get James. In the very next chapter, we're kind of reading about how Philip goes to get a man named Nathaniel. We read later about how when Jesus is walking along, he sees a guy named Levi, or you also know him as Matthew, a tax collector, and says, come and follow me. There's also a text within our chapter where Jesus goes up on the mountain and begins to pray and comes down and says, I now choose you twelve to be apostles, to follow after me. I'm designating you with this title. And it doesn't mean that there's not other people following him. Other people are still disciples and he's investing in them. But he's choosing these 12 that I am going to spend time influencing you. And it's not because he loves them more, but because I want to influence in you, let God transform you, and then may the kingdom be affected because you continue to take that to everyone else. And so as again, I step back because we're supposed to be like Jesus. Could I ask you, are you influencing very many people? And I'm not even talking about like a huge number. I mean, Jesus chose 12. And there are instances that I can like preach like this, and there's some influence that happens. But what about those relationships that I get to purposely invest in? Parents, your kids are ones that you can choose to invest in. And I get it that days are long and busy and hard. And sometimes there's a day that it's just like, I survived. But like, what happens if like, we look back at the week and that's what we said every single night and we didn't take the opportunities to really invest in our kids, to influence them, to help them to become the young men and the young women that God wants them to be. And it's not just kids. I mean, think about people that God's put in your life. Maybe there's a name right now. Maybe there's someone that you're already influencing, but God wants you to continue to do that. And it's not just for their sake. Although, man, God does transforming power in them. But then it's for the sake of the kingdom too, that they then get to influence other people. And so for all of us, I think if we're wanting to mirror what Jesus does, we need to have a desire to really influence people for that which is important. The third area that I look at Jesus just from the first part of his ministry is that he has an ability to love. Jesus has this ability to love. And so in John chapter three, he comes across a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a religious leader. He comes to Jesus at night. It could be because he doesn't want other people to see him. It could be because he's busy during the daytime. I don't know. But he comes to Jesus and they begin having a conversation and Jesus says, you must be born again. Anyone who wants to really love the Father must be born again. And as they continue this conversation, we get this verse that so many people know, but maybe don't understand the context, that Jesus says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
In this context of being born again, this is why the Father sent the Son. So the question is, you know, how was Nicodemus affected? Like, we don't have in Scripture written, Nicodemus began to follow Jesus. But we do see him appear in the Gospels two more times. There is one time that he is using his position to argue that we need to make sure that this Jesus is getting a fair trial. And then not long after that, we see him bringing some burial spices and going to the cross with Joseph of Arimathea and taking Jesus' body down to then put it in the tomb. I would say that that encounter with Jesus affected him a lot. But then right after that, we see this woman at the well in John chapter 4 that Jesus goes and talks to. And we're talking complete opposite. I mean, here we have this person that a lot of people look at, go, man, I want to be like him. Whereas the woman, they'd be like, I don't want any part of her. You know, you have this uh, person who's prestigious to this outsider. You have a man versus a woman. You have this Jew versus Samaritan. And all those things in that day is complete opposite. And yet Jesus spends time with this woman who's a Samaritan that has a past that most Jewish men wouldn't give even the time of day to. And as he's talking with her, he says, I have living water that you need. Let me give it to you. And they continue having a conversation. And by the end, she realizes that he is the Messiah. And she runs back to her town and says, you guys all need to come out and listen to this one who was able to tell me about my past and who is the Messiah. And the text says that a lot of people believe simply by her own testimony. But then they come out and they begin to listen to Jesus and see him. And then they believe because of what they see and what they hear. And we have these two complete opposite people. And yet Jesus spent time with both of them because Jesus has this ability to love without looking at labels, without like putting someone into a category that sometimes we do that. And there's a couple categories. I mean, we may go this category over here. Of, oh, don't, we don't want to be around this person. Like, do you know the sins that they do? Here's this. Or maybe it's not even that. Do you know what kind of people they hang out with? Or you know what? Do you know what kind of car they drive or clothes they wear? We kind of put people in this category. Or we flip it and go, hey, but this person, maybe this is the sport they play or the money that they have. Or we can even go religious. They're in church every week or I hear them pray out loud or whatever it is. And sometimes we put labels on people to give them value or devalue them. And Jesus never does that. He looks at two different people and says, you are both important because you are a child of God. And then he knows that God is the one that transforms people, that changes people if they're open to it. And so even as I just kind of step back and I look at these labels, I go, God, help me to be that kind of person. Like change my heart, change my mind, change my eyes, that I don't just immediately start putting labels on people when they see them, when I see them. Help me not to love someone, you know, if they'll do this for me or if they'll do that for me or help me not to love them because I'm supposed to or because they're here or whatever that is. Like simply help me to love because they're a son of God. They're a daughter of God. They are a child of the king and that makes them important. So again, if I'm looking at Jesus and just my first impression, I am amazed at his ability to love and we should have that kind of love as well for others. The fourth area that I see when I look at Jesus is that he has power over everything. 
his power over everything. And so in this text, there are all sorts of miracles that he does. And we start out by looking at this water that he turns into wine. There's this wedding ceremony that goes on for seven days and somewhere in the middle, they begin to run out, which would have brought shame upon the family. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, somehow must have been involved. And she comes to Jesus and says, you need to help fix this. And he says, yeah, this is not my time to start getting involved in all this. And so she listens a little bit, but quickly uh, turns to some servants and says, whatever he do, whatever he says, do it, which is really good advice. But again, he then says, this is what you need to do. And they go and fill up these containers with water. And then he turns them into wine, which is the best wine that they've had at this party. It's the first miracle that Jesus performs. Not long afterwards, it wasn't in, our, in the chapter of the story, but again, it's in the timeline. There's this Roman official who comes up to Jesus and says, I have a servant that is really sick and I need you to heal him. And Jesus says, okay, I will come. And he says, no, 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 no. I understand authority. Like there are people underneath me. I tell them to go do this and they go do it. I understand you have authority. And so I want you just to tell that my servant will be healed and I know it will be done. And Jesus is amazed at this man's faith. But that's what Jesus does. And at that exact moment, the servant is healed. As we keep reading in this text, there's a man who has an evil spirit. and He comes up as Jesus is teaching and starts crying out, you are Jesus the Christ. And Jesus says, be quiet. You know, it's not really great to have demons telling that. So he says, be quiet. And then he casts out the demon from this man and he's completely changed. Again, not long after that, Jesus goes to Peter's household and Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. There's some sort of fever. And the text says he rebukes the fever and she immediately is well and begins to get up and wait on everyone in the house. We read about a man who is, um, has leprosy. And again, this man comes up to Jesus and just says, if you are willing, will you please heal me? And Jesus says, I am willing and he restores this man. We read about someone who cannot walk. Uh, he's a paralytic, and his four friends bring him so that Jesus might heal him. But Jesus is teaching in this house, and it is so full of people all around that they decide, hey, here's our way. And so they go up on the roof because houses were built differently. They uh, tear a hole, and they lower him down in front of Jesus, and Jesus sees their faith and heals this man. And then at the end of this chapter, we see that there's a man who has a shriveled hand. And he's in the religious courts, but it's on Sabbath day. There's all these Pharisees watching to see what's Jesus going to do because you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus' heart is like, yeah, that's never what God intended. And so he chooses to heal this man. And in front of them, some of them begin to go, we're looking for a way of now how we can kill him because he's going against all these things that they'd made as far as rules that God had put, that God never intended. And not once, or twice, but at least three times in this section of scripture over these first 13 months, Jesus, it says that people, like crowds, brought out everyone who was sick or had a disease or who was demon uh, infested. Like they brought these people to Jesus and he would heal them. And so I look that we get to experience some of the individual moments, but we also just get these moments that lots of people came and Jesus displayed his power. Now, he didn't just do it because, hey, everyone, look at me. Look at my power. Like sometimes he was doing it to prove he was the son of God. Sometimes he did it because he was proving a point in his teaching. For instance, when the paralytic was dropped down from the roof, he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, you can't do that. Only God can do that. He said, okay, just to show you that I can do that, now get up and walk. And so that's where he comes in. So sometimes his miracles were a point to teach something. And then sometimes it was simply because he had compassion on someone. 
He's like, this is not the way that the Father and I and the Spirit set things up. Sin has entered and so many people are having to live in this world and how can we help? And so he has compassion on people. And again, I just look at this Jesus and sometimes we can read these stories over and over and go, okay, yeah, Jesus did this. Like imagine being there and what would have happened Like we read when Jesus does one of these things, like people go away just proclaiming that he is the son of God. Like sometimes he even says, don't go and tell anyone. And yeah, they're like going and telling everyone, look what Jesus did. In fact, demons are continuing to shout out who he is because he is a man that has power over everything. But then as I look at us, like if we're supposed to imitate Jesus, like this is the one that we don't have. Like none of us have power over everything. That'd be really cool if we did, but we don't. And yet, even as I look at this, the reason that he used, you know, his powers, the ways that he used them was always for people. And I think about how you and I, we have different powers, different responsibilities, different things that God has given us. And do we use those to be able to influence other people, to help them in the situations that they are? In Philippians 2, it says that we should have the attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It said we should be humble. We should look at others as better than ourselves. We should not just, you know, um, we should look out for their needs as well. And so all this is the idea of here's the mission that Jesus started so long ago. And we are challenged to continue the mission. May we be like him. And so just first impressions as I step back, man, I see his heart of obedience. And I see his desire to influence and his ability to love and his power over everything. And I think we should be following after him. But I also think when I step back, I'm like, wow, this is not an ordinary man, which is the chapter title of our next chapter in the story, No Ordinary Man. But we get a glimpse of what is to come. He has only begun his ministry. And I also know that we've been looking at it from a bird's eye view, but what if you looked at each person as an individual? Can you think about how this encounter with Jesus changed their life? Like these apostles, who have been invested in, their lives are changed. These people like Nicodemus and the woman at the well who listen to him, their lives are changed. These people who have a miracle done on them, their lives are changed. Or even watching it, their lives are changed. And 2,000 years later, when we have an encounter with Jesus, our lives are still changed. Like when we open up our hearts, when we open up our minds to come in contact with him, he wants to give us joy and purpose. He wants to give us victory wants to take away any guilt and shame and follow after him. And so today, maybe is the day that it's really your first encounter with Jesus. Or maybe it's your first time that you're ready to respond to him, going, I am going to choose to be obedient to him. And if you want to begin following Jesus, then I encourage you to, follow, uh, to go to one of these decision points. We've got volunteers that want to talk with you, want to pray with you, want to help you with that decision as you begin this journey with him. And for some of you, maybe there's just something that like you're carrying on your shoulders. Like life is pretty heavy right now, like we talked about. And you were never meant to carry it on your own. And during this time, our people at the Decision Point would love to pray with you. So you don't have to carry it by yourself. All I know is as I look at Jesus, man, I'm super impressed as far as first impression goes. And I know that it's only a glimpse. And so he wants us to encounter him. If you need to encounter him for the very first time, then Go to one of the decision points as we stand and sing. So you guys stand as we sing.